Revelation 14, while these kids keep on coming. I've asked Mary Beth Hicks if she would read to us this morning, and so she'll be reading out of Revelation chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Again, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it shows us. Uh, Father, today I I pray that that the urgency of, of the message we have to proclaim would would grab hold of our hearts. Uh, I pray that the realization would settle on us that we have to pick a side, that that we're either with the dragon or with the lamb, and we don't get to be uh, in the middle. We don't get to be neutral because there's not one of us in this room that is. Uh, And so today I I pray uh, uh, for conviction for where we are neutral, conviction for where we're indifferent, uh, and that, Father, you would energize us to, to go out and to go fight. Uh, to share the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us. Uh, Thank you for each and every person that's here today, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so 40 times in Revelation, you're going to see this phrase, I saw or uh, I heard, right, from John. I saw or I heard. And so Michael Wilcox tells us this, is that when we read the book of Revelation, we're to imagine the seven churches, because remember it's written to them for us, seven churches gathered together on the Lord's Day, right? We are to imagine these seven churches hearing the vision read and asking, what did John see next? What did John hear next? And see, that's important because as I've tried to tell you over and over again, like the, the, the events that, that are described in the book of Revelation, they're not chronological, right? So for our Western mindset, we want to think everything starts here and it's on a straight line and it's chronological. Well, that's not how they thought. And so nothing in Revelation is chronological, right? Instead, we're constantly told, hey, then I saw, then I heard. And so we always have to ask not what happens next, but what did John see next? What did John hear next? Because what John sees next may not be what happens next, okay? So the clearest example of this has been in the section of scripture that we found ourselves in, right? So starting in, in, in chapter 12, an event takes place, right, that, that happened long before John was arrested and sent to Patmos. Th- this event that, that is described happened thousands of years ago. And so as you're reading through Revelation, we keep reading and we keep thinking that we're coming to the end only to find John starting over with a brand new set of images, 
So throughout the book, we come to the end of time six times. In chapter 7, in chapter 11, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 21. And all of this gets bracketed by the fact that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, is coming. Not he will come back, it's that he is coming back. Daryl Johnson puts it this way. He says, the process is happening at this very moment. Jesus Christ is not sitting on his throne passively anticipating some future date when he gets up and he moves towards us. No, he's moving now. He's coming towards us now. So we have to stop thinking that Jesus is sitting at the house on the couch, right? He's got the potato chips and he's just eating them. They're all over his shirt. And he's just looking at his watch going, oh, I got a little time to kill before I go get him. Right? Or, oh, I got a few minutes to spare. I'm going to look up uh, cat videos on YouTube. Right? Then I'll go get him. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's coming towards us now. See, I feel like we've done a great disservice with this book. Because what we've done is we've made this book this strange gloom and doom book about a whole bunch of future events that look like Terminator Judgment Day, right? And, and, and a future that most of us think that we're going to be vacuumed out of and we'll never see it. Instead of seeing that this book is, is a very hopeful, it's encouraging, and it reminds us as Christians that no matter what we go through, that no matter how much we suffer, no matter how dark the night gets, our Lord and Savior has already won the day, and he's coming back to get us. That we can stand up under that, that we can endure because of what Jesus has done for us. So, so you have to keep all this in mind as we keep reading, because if not, you're going to get confused over the next couple of weeks. Remember, John has seen these vision of judgments through seven seals. These things have happened in the past. These things are happening now. And these things will continue to happen until Christ returns. Then he sees visions of these judgments of trumpets. Again, judgments that, that, that have happened in the past. They're happening now. They'll continue to happen until the return of Christ. And then you come to chapter 12. Chapter 12, most scholars tell you, is the theological center. And instead of ending it, God says, okay, John, I want to zoom back. I want to take a big picture view of what's happening. And I want to show you this battle that's been raging for thousands and thousands of years. And so from chapter 12 to 15, we're getting this big picture view of this cosmic battle that's been going on between the lamb and the dragon. And it's as if John is saying from chapter 12 to 15, you have to pick a side. We're, we're in a fight and you have to pick a side. And not one of us in this room is neutral when it comes to this battle. You're either on the side of the dragon or you're on the side of the lamb. So chapter 12 shows the dragon attempting to kill the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. But failing that, what does he do? He turns his attention to the children of Jesus, to the church. And he raises up two beasts, creating a false trinity. We said last week that the two beasts are the Antichrist and the false prophet. The first, the Antichrist, is dragon-manipulated political power. It's any government that does not worship Jesus Christ. It's any government that seeks to persecute and destroy God's people. The second one is dragon-manipulated religious power. In other words, it's, 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 it's trying to get us as the church to get our eyes off Jesus and to focus on a, a political uh, ideology or a political figure. And these two beasts, their purpose are to keep the people of God from following him in loyalty and obedience. It's a spiritual game that he's playing. So, so as we come to chapter 14, we know Satan, the dragon, is using his two beasts to distract us. 
to move us away from giving our whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what John's going to do in chapter 14 is a few things, right? He's first, he's going to assure us that Jesus is one. And then if we're his, if we are marked and sealed by Jesus, we'll be kept until heaven. We'll be kept until the day he dies or, or to the day he returns. Then in verse 6, he'll show us that we have a job to do right here on this earth while the beasts are roaming the earth. We have to pick a side. You're either with the lamb or you're with the dragon. You're not neutral. And then in verse 12, he goes back and he encourages us again. So, so as you read the book, know this. Every time John has something to say that's negative, he always bookends it with positive, encouraging news. The whole book is that way. How does the book open up? I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first, I'm the last. How's the book end? I'm the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm in charge of everything. And in between it, we got some difficult news, but it's bookended by great news. And this is what he's going to do in this section of scripture. So look with me, if you will, in chapter 14, and we'll look at verses one through five. So then I looked, right, John's seeing, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. At the end of chapter 12, Satan's standing on the sand of the sea. At the start of 14, we see the lamb, Jesus Christ, standing on the solid rock of Mount Zion. Most scholars will tell you that this is not on the earth, but this is Jesus in heaven. And the point is, Satan is on unsteady ground. If you're gonna fight a battle, you do not wanna fight a battle on sand. You would rather fight it on solid ground. And more importantly, you would rather fight a battle from the high ground. And this is where Jesus is at, standing on solid ground. He has the vantage point, he's up high. And standing with Jesus are the 144,000. We saw them back in chapter seven. That was the last time we saw them. And what we said was the 144,000 is not some special select group of Christians. It's not a special group of Jewish people. The 144,000 are you and I, Christians, believers. It's 12 by 12 by 1,000. 12 being the number of completion for God's people, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. A thousand being a generic number suggesting a great multitude. So 144,000 is a way of saying all of God's people under the old and the new covenant. That God knows his people is what it's telling us. In chapter seven, we see God sealing his people, writing his name on their foreheads. So if you know Jesus, if you've trusted in him, what John's telling you is that you are part of this great multitude, that God has sealed you, that he's made you his own, that he knows every tear that falls. He knows all your pain. He knows all your sorrows and he will care for you and he will carry you through till the very end. In Revelation chapter three, verse 12, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And that's exactly what we see right there as the Father's name is written on their foreheads. They're sealed in chapter seven. 
And John sees that they've received the promise that Jesus has made to them and they've overcome. I love it. There's 144,000 promised in chapter seven. And in chapter 14, we have 144,000. You don't have uh, 143,999, right? Jesus didn't lose a single one of them. They've overcame. They're standing on Mount Zion. They're bearing the name of the Father. They're showing forth his glory. And what John wants you and I to see is that there is so much more to this life than our years right here on this earth. That death is not the end of everything. That this life is going to go on. And so if all you're living for is right now, if you're just pursuing all kinds of garbage of this world, thinking, hey, I'm gonna get as much as I can, you're not taking it, right? There's so much more to come for you and you're going to miss the promise of what awaits. We've already said it. I'm gonna say it 15 more times. You have to pick a side. You're either with the lamb or you're with the dragon, but you are not neutral. And then John hears a voice from heaven, which we know is God the Father. And what we see is the 144,000 redeemed believers singing a song before the throne. And it says that nobody can know the song but them. So it doesn't mean that they're up there being like, hey, I don't want anybody to know this song. Like, let's just keep it between us. It's our little secret. It's not what they're doing. It just means that only those of us who are redeemed can sing the song of the redeemed. If you don't know Jesus, you can't sing death was arrested and my life began because your life hasn't begun because you don't know Jesus. You're still dead in your sin. You're still in your sorrows. You're still separated from him. It's only those of us who can say that, yeah, Jesus has done what I can't do. Jesus has lived the life I should have lived. Jesus has died the death I deserve. Jesus has taken my place. And because of Jesus, I have been redeemed and I've been bought. And because of that, now we can sing the song of the redeemed. What's the great hymn sing? Say, redeeming love has been my theme and it shall be till I die. Those who know Jesus get to sing this song. James Hamilton tells us that there will not be Hindus Buddhists, Muslims singing this song, nor will there be decent people who were consistent with their own atheism. Only those who put explicit faith in Jesus will sing this song. That's a good word. Verses four and five, let's just read it. It says, these, uh, it is these who have not defiled themselves with uh, women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. Now, Verse four has caused a lot of feminist problems, okay? Because they think that it's like, oh, well, I'm just a bad person because they haven't defiled themselves with women. What's wrong with women? We're bad people, right? Um, and you could read all kinds of crazy feminist arguments over this, this verse. Let me just tell you what he's saying there. He's not trying to, 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 to demean women. He's not putting down women. Basically what he's saying is that, they, that they've remained pure, that they haven't taken part in the paganism and the immorality of Babylon which here in a moment we're gonna see is the central symbol in the book of Revelation for human civilization that is in rebellion against God. It says they have no lie in their mouth. So what they say and do is consistent with how they live. They're blameless. They're not sinless, but they're above reproach. So what you see is what you get. Christians follow the lamb wherever he goes. They stick to his heels. He leads us by his word and his spirit, and then we follow him. That's all he's saying, is that they've trusted in Jesus and then they followed Jesus. They've been obedient to Jesus. They've listened to the words of Jesus. That's what he's getting at. And so John opens chapter 14 this way because you and I need assurance that if we are sealed, that if God has written his name on our forehead, that he will not lose a single one of us. That no matter how hard this life gets, 
no matter how difficult it gets, no matter the persecution we face, he will carry us through to the very end. And we need that because in verse six, we're gonna shift back to the earth and we're gonna shift back to the period of time that we find ourselves in right now. So Satan has been defeated. Remember, Jesus has defanged him. He's defeated him on the cross, but Satan is a lunatic. And so Satan is going to do everything in his power to wreak as much havoc as he can before the day ends. But while this conflict rages on with Satan and his beasts, something else is happening. The gospel's being announced through the world. We're gonna see seeds of the kingdom are being sown. And very soon, and at the end of chapter 14, what we're gonna see is that there's a great harvest that's coming. In other words, John's saying things are not as they seem. Before we reach our final home to sing the song of the redeemed, we have a job to do. We have a battle to fight. And listen, you have to pick a side. You're either with the lamb or the dragon. You're not neutral. Let's look at verse six. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So John sees three angels. Now there's debate on what he's talking about here. Um, is he saying that these angels are doing the work of the gospel, that it's the angels that are flying throughout the world, world proclaiming the good news of the gospel? And it could be, because is the Bible not clear that, that we have entertained angels unaware in Hebrews? 90s kids, you remember newsboys, right? Entertaining angels, yeah, okay. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Is he talking about the church? The Greek word for angels is the word messengers. So, so is he talking about us? So, so what is it? Well, listen, I don't think we have to choose. I, I really don't. I think he means both. Listen to what Daryl Johnson says, not the fullback, different Daryl Johnson, right? Every time I read that, I'm like, man, is that the moose? No, it's not him, all right? He's from Canada, right? They don't even play football up there. I mean, I guess they do, but wider. Anyways, I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit. Um, Daryl Johnson says, together, angels and the church compromise heaven's FedEx delivery service, bringing gospel good news to the world. I like that. So while the beasts are doing their thing, while they're roaming around trying to get people distracted, trying to get people to take their eyes off Jesus and follow the dragon, the church of Jesus Christ, us believers, along with angelic beings, we're doing our thing. And what he says is that we have an eternal gospel to proclaim. So the gospel is about eternity. It's about what happens after death, yes and amen, but it's also rooted and grounded in the eternal character of God's will. So the gospel was never plan B. It wasn't like God said, hey, I'm gonna put Adam and Eve down here. They're gonna do everything right. And if anything happens, I got this fallback plan. No, God knew what was gonna happen. And the gospel was always plan A. The gospel was always the plan to save and redeem humanity. 
And it tells us that the beast is after every tribe and tongue and people. But guess what we're after? Every tribe and tongue and people. That's what we're trying to go get. So anytime we talk about race here at the church, this is what we mean. We want every tribe and tongue and people, regardless of income, regardless of ethnicity, we want all people to come and know Jesus. And and when you look at what he says there, the angel says in verse six, um, he says, he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and let him worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of the water. You, you read that and you're like, man, that doesn't really sound like gospel, Byron. But it is gospel. It's presented here as a call to repent, to turn from what you're doing, to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter one, when Jesus began his ministry, how did he begin it? After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what does he say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from what you're doing. Trust in Jesus. That's the call. So if you and I have been created by the creator of all things to have a relationship with the creator of all things, then we will not be who we're created to be until we fear God and give him glory. You will never be who God called you to be until you do those things. So the angel's saying, hey, given all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, therefore, fear God, give him glory. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. So let's just read some gospel verses. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy 1, 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's the good news. And so the angel's saying, because of what Jesus has done now, Therefore, turn, fear God, and give him glory. Follow him. Bank your life on him. Trust him. Go with him wherever he goes. Isn't that our job, folks? As believers, that's our job, is it not? To go and herald the good news of the gospel. So in chapter 12, we read about this cosmic battle. Again, you were all fired up. Text me, oh man, it was a great sermon. It was wonderful. We're ready to fight. Well, this is how we fight. You tell people about Jesus. That's how you fight. See, when you take seriously the call to evangelize, you understand that you're living where you live on purpose. It is not an accident, whether you like it or not, that you live in Spearman, Texas, or in Groover, or in Hansford County. It's not an accident. God puts you here, right? You work where you work. It is not an accident. You may hate it. You may not like your boss, but you work where you work. Your kids have the friends that they have. You have the hobbies and the interests that you have. It is not an accident. It is intentional. And God did that so that you could take the gospel of Jesus to those people. Same with me. I've got a job to do as well. right? And God has intentionally lined up my life just like yours for me to take the gospel. I do it here on Sunday mornings, but I have to do it at other places. It's not just for me to do. It's for you to do as well. And what you need to understand, I've been trying to tell you this for seven years, people in this town don't know Jesus. They don't. They have some bizarre, strange, quasi-God and country spirituality that is not the gospel. 
You could go out and ask people, share the gospel with me. And you would probably get some version of, well, I voted conservative my whole life, I've gone to church my whole life, and I'm a really good person. And you would not hear that I'm a sinner saved by grace. Because they don't know the gospel. And the reason why, back to chapter 13, the beast has them. The beast is saying, hey, get your eyes off Jesus and look over here. Get the eyes off Jesus and look at you and how you're doing and all the good things that you do. Get your eyes away from him and look to a political figure, a political ideology. The beast has them. And so we have a job to do. And it's really hard to do it, isn't it? Because if we were honest, we live in the most distracted time period ever. And there's a spiritual battle raging. And so there's a reason why whenever you get the urge to pray, that you wanna grab your phone and stop praying. There's, there's a reason why when you, you say, hey, God's like, hey, go, go invite your neighbor over for dinner, that you're like, ah, man, I'm just gonna watch some Netflix, man. Right, I just wanna ignore everything for a little while. That's by design. It's by design. That's the beast. If he can distract you with gadgets or he can distract you with media or he can distract you with something of this world, then he's got you and then he's taking you out of a fight and he takes another soul to hell. That's the point. So we have to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. That's what this first angel is doing is wherever we're at, we're telling every tribe, tongue, nation, language about Jesus Christ. Secondly, look at verse eight, the second angel. And another angel followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this angel comes through and it's saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, this is gonna be important for the rest of the book. Babylon is not referring to ancient Babylon in Iraq. It is not referring to a future rise of Babylon. It's referring to, at the time of the writing, Rome. John's talking about Rome. Babylon was a code word for Rome. So, so John's not going to write some letter, send it to these churches and write Rome all in it. I mean, you know what happens whenever they intercept that letter, right? You're gone. That's how Rome plays. The book of 1 Peter, written by the apostle Peter from Rome, ends this way. 1 Peter 5.13, she who is at Babylon, she is the church. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. In John's day, Rome was Babylon. So this angel is saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And at the time of the writing in the late AD 90s, Rome hasn't fallen yet. Rome's not gonna fall for almost 200 more years. But this angel, notice, is putting the whole thing in the past tense. This angel is saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That this angel is so certain that Babylon's demise is coming that they're able to put it in the past tense. And he does this for two reasons. First off, understand Babylon excludes the living God as its center. So any nation that pushes God from the center of its being cannot survive. It's only a matter of time before that nation collapses in on itself. Right, Bueller, America, hello. Are we not there? We pushed God out a long time ago. Why do you think everything's happening the way it is? If you push God out from the center, it's gonna collapse in on itself. In the 20th century, the collapse of Soviet Union, it was inevitable. Why? They pushed God out from its center. And understand that God would not be God if he wasn't against Babylon. So Babylon's enemy is not the beast. Babylon's enemy is not Satan. Babylon's enemy is God. 
God is against Babylon. Gerhard Krodel says this, the supreme threat to our own world is not communism, capitalism, socialism, or any other ism or lie, but God coming to judge the world in each of us in righteousness. And the second reason is because Babylon causes other nations to get drunk with her immorality. Babylon and the nations are bringing on themselves the wrath of God. We see this in our own day. Go turn on the news. I, I bet every one of us at some point this week turned on the news or you got on social media or whatever and you went, we're doing that now? Men can have babies now? Right? Men are birthing persons. They got uteruses. That's crazy. Right? They didn't teach me that in health class. Like, I had a terrible teacher. Like, like we, we turn it on and it's like every day something's coming up. They're like, are we teaching our kids this now? Like, these are the kind of things that we're allowing in our schools. The sexual perversion of our culture, America, knows no bounds. And then we're exporting that to every other part of the world, right? Babylon is sending her drink out to everyone else. And what this angel's trying to get you and I to see is that sexual perversion has consequences. We see that in our own culture. We see it in our churches as we continually collapse and give way to the culture. As we continue to lose the moral high ground on this issue in our churches every day. And I get it. Like, Byron, how is this good news? Like, you're talking about being a pervert and people are drunk with wine. Well, that's the point. Paul's saying is that whenever they're drunk with sexual perversion, they can't hear the good news of the gospel. Right? It's like sharing the good news of the gospel with the drunk at the bar, right? And he might cry that night, like, oh, man, you're right. He's going to forget about it the next morning. So God will not only let her fall, God causes her to fall. That's what he's saying. That the only way for people trapped in an ungodly system to hear the gospel is for the ungodly system to collapse. So the only way for our materialistic, sexually perverted culture to hear the truth is to let the lie collapse. You ever counseled somebody that's in the midst of an affair? Boy, they're drunk, aren't they? They cannot see straight, right? This person they're married to is awful. This person's gonna make them happy forever and ever and ever and ever. And they cannot see straight. You can't talk them out of it. Their minds are fixed on doing what they wanna do. But then down the road, maybe months, maybe quicker than that, when they wake up from the stupor, all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, what have I I done? This is what he's saying, is that when we're caught up in the system, we're so drunk, we're so blind that we can't see, and that when it falls, that's the only way that we're able to see. So here's where the good news is, is that when the lie collapses, right, whenever the sexually perverted culture falls, then you and I as believers are there to step in with the gospel and say, hey, brother, sister, let me show you something better. Like you're chasing this thing, you're pursuing this thing, you think this thing is gonna make you happy, well it hasn't, so let me tell you about Jesus. We step in and we say all that stuff that you're chasing is temporary, all that stuff is not gonna get you anywhere, let me tell you about Jesus, let me tell you about the gospel. See, Babylon's fallen, it's over, Jesus is one. Whose side are you on? You, you have to pick a side. 
You're either with the dragon or with the lamb, but you cannot stay neutral, folks. We have to fight. We have to pick a side. And then look at the third angel, starting in verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. In 2011, there was a book that came out by a very, very popular Christian pastor. It was called Love Wins, right? Maybe some of you read this. Maybe some of you remember this. But, but the whole premise of the book was, was this, is that God was so loving that he would never send anybody to hell. And that at the end of time, everyone will be saved. And it just essentially claims that we're, we're all on the same path, that, that we, we're all going somewhere. We're just going to get there in different ways. Which if you follow that logic out, you're like, I don't think me and Hitler were on the same path. I mean, you know, we kind of diverged there. But, but if you follow that out, then he somehow made it. And this idea has been around for years, but really since that book, it's become more and more popular to believe that everyone's going to heaven. And we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. It's really popular right now in our culture with this idea of deconstruction. Right? I'm going to deconstruct my faith because did God really say? Did God really mean? Well, God didn't really, you know, and, and it's just taking all these questions and trying to pull apart everything that God has said. So let's just real quick go back to Bible 101. God has such wrath against sin because God is love. So the more you love something, the more wrathful you can be when that thing is harmed. So I love my family. I love my wife. I love my kids. And if you seek to harm one of them, we're going to have a problem, right? I'm not very big, but I'm wiry, right? I'm wiry. I can get it. See, if I was just indifferent to my children, then you couldn't provoke wrath out of me if I was indifferent. Just say, ah, do whatever you want. I mean, there's a reason why some of you mamas lose your minds on Friday nights in the stands, right? You love your baby. Don't hit my baby. And they're going crazy out there. You don't want your baby hurt because you love your baby. And so your wrath comes out when anyone seeks to harm your baby or your family. God is love, right? One more time, God is love. It's not just something that he does. It's not just an attribute. He is love. And because he is love, he is wrath. When we follow the dragon and the beast, it provokes his wrath because we're participating in the destruction of what he's made. He wouldn't be a good and loving God if he just said, oh, well, whatever, just, just go ahead and just chase that thing and let it hurt you. That's fine. That's fine. You, you just go get it. I, I don't care if it destroys what I made. I don't care if it just wreaks a, a path of destruction in your life. Just, just go ahead. No. Because he's love, he's wrath, and when he sees something that's harming what he made, he will act. And so when we read passages like this, and I know some of you were squirming a little bit. We talked about this in our Wednesday night Bible study. This stuff makes us uncomfortable still. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to be the guy to get up here and be like, turn to burn, man. But, but, but this is what he's saying. And when the Bible uses the language of fire and sulfur to describe judgment, um, and it does. It's throughout the Bible. You see it in Genesis 19 when it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. You read it in passages like Psalm 11:6. It says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. 
So fire and brimstone just means torment. And it's gonna be used four more times in the book of Revelation. And, and there's debate. Will there actually be some physical torment like this in hell? Will it really be this agonizing physical thing? And scholars are debating on that. We don't know, but it is likely, yes. But, but listen, when the Bible talks about hell, it does refer to a spiritual or psychological torment. It refers to separation. Hell is ultimately the absence of God. Hell is the place that God is not. Tim Keller puts it this way. Listen to this. He says, in short... Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory of infinity. We see this process writ small in addictions to drugs, alcohol, gambling, and pornography. First, there's a disintegration because as time goes on, you need more and more of the addictive substance to get an equal kick, which leads to less and less satisfaction. Second, there is an isolation and increasingly you blame others and circumstances in order to justify your behavior. No one understands, everyone's against me, is muttered in greater and greater self-pity and self-absorption. So on this earth, it means that God just simply gives you up to your desires and lets you run in them. What's the book of Revel uh, Romans chapter one, verses 24 and 25? Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. That's a scary verse. Because that means that we can all get to the point where God just says, hey man, if you want that thing so bad, go get it. And instead of bringing conviction, instead of bringing uh, uh, repentance into our life, he just lets us run. I mean, that scares me a lot to, to think that he could just give me up and say, hey, you keep chasing that thing so bad, then go get it. Basically, what it means is that um, everyone who goes to hell chooses hell. Everyone. C.S. Lewis said it this way, there's only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be, gun, be done to God or those who God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will miss it. All right, good grief, Byron. How's this good news? You gotta share all the gospel, guys. You don't just get to share the lovey-dovey parts that we like, that, oh, he loves us and he died for us. That's good news. But you have to share the other part of it, too. You have to share the reality of the war that we find ourselves in. Do you see why I say we gotta choose a side? You can't be neutral. You're with the dragon or you're with the lamb, but you don't get to be in the middle. You either choose to serve and follow Jesus or you choose hell. And we have so many we know in our town, in our families, who are choosing hell on a daily basis and we don't do anything about it. And so it's our job to go tell them the good news. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about what awaits those who follow Jesus, the rewards and singing the song of the redeemed and being with him forever. And then you tell them about what awaits those who don't, torment and anguish and separation forever and ever and ever. Now listen, don't lead with turn or burn. Or don't walk up to them and be like, hey, do you like it hot? It's gonna be. Like, you don't lead that way. Like, we should have never even started leading that way. What I would say is you love them. You get to know them. 
You bring them into your home. We don't do that anymore, do we? We don't bring people in our homes. We don't share meals with people anymore. You like to gram your home and make everybody look, think it looks better than it does, but you don't bring anybody in it. You don't break bread with them. You don't get to know them and love them and care for them and then share the gospel with them. That's how we do it. But eventually you have to share the truth. And you tell them worshiping the living God leads to one destiny. Worshiping the beast leads to another. But Babylon has fallen and so you must choose who you will worship. So listen to me, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you understand that the time is short. Babylon has fallen, judgment is coming, hell is real. But listen, it's unnecessary. Hell's completely unnecessary because in your case, there's an eternal gospel. There's pardon and peace through Jesus Christ available to you right now. This destiny doesn't have to be yours. Fear God, give him glory. Turn to Christ while there's still time. That's me, the pastor, pleading with you to trust Jesus. All right, and then look at verse 12. He encourages us one more. He's got a book in it, remember? We have a home in heaven. And then verse 12, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So if you're a Christian, John tells us, here's how you respond. I love it. Here's the call for the endurance of the saints. Once again, he's telling us to hold fast. Once again, he's saying persevere. Keep moving forward, no matter how tough it gets, keep moving forward. Know that Babylon's fallen. Know that Jesus has won. Share the gospel, proclaim the good news of Jesus. Verse 13, it's read at funerals. Blessed is the one who dies in the Lord. That's good news. He who dies in Jesus endures to the end. He gets to be with Jesus. Daryl Johnson tells us when the saints, the people of God join the angels in announcing the gospel, they can experience rejection. They can even get persecuted. They, we, need to persevere, to persevere in announcing the gospel, knowing that judgment is real does not lead the church to sit back and watch it happen. Knowing that judgment is real leads the church into telling the good news. So if you believe in this coming judgment, right, you can nod at me, you can smile, you can be like, yeah, Byron, I believe in all this. If you believe that God, Babylon's fallen, then where's the urgency? Where's the urgency to proclaim the gospel? I've said it throughout the sermon, I'll say it again, you have to choose a side. You're either with the lamb or the dragon, but you're not neutral. And hear me on this. I'm not interested in people who don't want to fight. There's a lot of other churches in town. They'll love you. They'll care for you. They'll keep you comfortable, and that's fine. That's good. I'm good with that. That's fine. But that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in making some noise and driving Satan crazy in this town. I'm interested in getting in a little trouble. Let's go. So whose side are you on, the lamb or the beast? The lamb or the dragon, but you have to choose. And I want you to hear me very carefully on this because I think a lot of you would go, well, Byron, I, I don't worship Satan. I mean, I ain't got no, no pentagram in my house with, with, with candles and Ouija board and Halloween's coming up and that's bad and nasty. That's Satan's holiday. I don't believe in that. I don't worship Satan. Okay, you're right. You're just indifferent. because you're indifferent you've chosen a side and indifference is what's killing us we're indifferent in the things of the Lord we're indifferent with our kids and I say this just because I love you 
I'm so sick and tired of us saying, hey, uh, youth group and church and those things, they're great for my kid till about eighth grade, but then after that, they've kind of outgrown it, so I'm not gonna make them go anymore. I'm, I'm wore out with it. We're indifferent. We've chosen a side. So listen, look at your life. What's it oriented around? Is it oriented around the dragon or is it oriented around the lamb? Brothers and sisters, listen, I want people who want to make some noise here in Spearman. I want some people to say, hey, let's go. Let's go tell people about Jesus, right? I want some people that take seriously the call to follow him. And if that's you, listen, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray and then we're just gonna stand and we're gonna sing. And I'm gonna ask that you would sing with all of your heart to the lamb who has died, who was slain for your sins. I'm gonna ask that you would sing the song of the redeemed, right? There's a line in the song that says the saints and angels can never stop singing of this perfect love. And I'm gonna ask that you sing that because after all, isn't that the song of the redeemed? That Jesus has died and that he's redeemed us, that he's provided salvation for us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. And I thank you for this church. I love this church. I love what you're doing in this church. Uh, Father, I just pray that we would take seriously the call to pick a side. And so that today we would examine our lives and if there's areas of indifference, and, and even me as a pastor, I know there's areas where I'm indifferent, that Father, you would forgive me, that we would repent and that we would commit ourselves to saying, hey, I, I'm with the Lamb. And we would take the good news of Jesus to our culture. We'd take the good news of the gospel to Spearman, Texas. And that through that, Father, we would drive Satan crazy. I love you. Thank you so much for what you've done for us through Jesus. I pray that now we would stand and we would sing to him with all that we've got. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would.